Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. Thanks for tuning in again. When writing an episode about serial murders, I often expect that the episode will be significantly longer and more in-depth than a case involving one or two incidences. But as many of you I'm sure already know, this case in particular for today, despite involving only one murder, is bound to be a long one. This case, since its resolution, has had almost all details released online and there is a lot of public domain content. Lots of videos of interrogations, court documents, you name it. It's kind of very overwhelming. But since this is a very important cautionary tale to tell, I'm going to try my best to do the story some justice. So let's get started. Travis Victor Alexander was born on July 28th of 1977 in Riverside, California to Gary and Pamela Alexander. Travis had seven siblings who eventually were all taken in by their grandparents. Travis's parents were both addicts who suffered with drug addictions and were unable to adequately care for him and his siblings. Before being taken in by his grandparents at age 11, Travis experienced a life of poverty and abuse at the hands of his mother. His grandparents were devout Mormons and they introduced Travis to the church after taking him in. And for the first time in his life, Travis was exposed to a true sense of community. He got really into it. He met many friends and ended up even going on a mission trip with this church. Mormonism became a huge part of Travis's life. Later on in his adult years, Travis began working for a multi-level marketing company called Prepaid Legal Services, or just PPL, in California where he had lived for his whole life. PPL is sort of like other multi-level marketing companies where the path to making a decent living is by hustling. In order to be successful, you have to be sociable, maintain a great rapport with people, you're always recruiting more to the business, people have to really like you. And Travis thrived in this environment. He loved his job, he was very social, he was extremely hardworking, and even began public speaking for the company on occasions. By all accounts, he was building himself a great life and was very successful. In 2004, Travis moved to Mesa, Arizona with the intentions of connecting with the larger Mormon community that lived there in comparison to in California, and he was very excited about this. Backtracking a little, Jody Ann Arias was born on July 9th of 1980 in Salinas, California to William and Sandra Arias. Jodi grew up in a Christian household, but her parents didn't enforce the faith on her too strictly. She had a relatively normal upbringing, she was good in school, and she even played the flute. But Jody tells a very different story. Jody was caught growing marijuana in her parents' home fairly young, and consequently her parents came down on her a little harder after this. Jody, however, maintains that her parents were abusive from this point on, although her parents deny this, but to be honest, we don't know what the truth is, but more on that later. Throughout high school, and frankly up until her arrest, Jodi was what I call a serial monogamist. She was always in a serious relationship with relatively short breaks in between. 
Jodi fell hard and she fell fast. Her relationships always moved quickly and started up very quickly. While she was working at the Vantana Inn in Big Sur, California, she met a man named Daryl Brewer and they began seeing each other. They clicked pretty much right away. Daryl had a young son who Jody had a good relationship with and before long, she and Daryl were in the market to buy a home together. Again, this type of thing was typical for Jody. She was always moving fast with her boyfriends, but he didn't mind. They were so in love, and so her and Daryl enjoyed their lives together while she worked at the Ventana Inn and was also a part-time photographer, which is a hobby that she had since childhood. However, in 2006, Jody and Daryl's relationship was starting to fizzle out. They were arguing more often, but they were still living together in California. Eventually, their relationship problems worsened when they began struggling financially, and so Jody picked up another job working for none other than prepaid legal services. This is how Jody Arias actually met Travis Alexander, and the two of them spent a significant time together at a PPL conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. Immediately after meeting, Jody and Travis had a connection. They began seeing each other casually, mind you, while Jody was still dating Daryl, and despite Travis's devout Mormon faith, they engaged in a very hypersexual relationship right from the beginning. Although at this time Travis and Jody were living in separate states, her in California and him in Arizona, they maintained a long distance relationship over some time. During the beginning phase of their budding relationship, they exchanged over 82,000 emails and by all accounts were starting to become very into each other. At some point in 2006, when Travis was 30 years old and Jody was 28 years old, Jody actually converted to the Church of Latter-day Saints and was baptized by Travis into Mormonism. It's unclear when Jody broke things off with Daryl, whether it was before or after the baptism, but either way, it happened. And in February 2007, Jody and Travis coined their relationship as official and monogamous, and Jody moved to Mesa, Arizona to be closer to Travis. Friends of Travis weren't really a big fan of Jody from the beginning. Travis, again, despite his Mormon faith and despite his friends actually thinking that he was abstinent, he was known to be a bit of a ladies' man, and his friends just thought he could do better. Travis was good-looking and successful in his job, a real go-getter, and Jody just wasn't their ideal pick for him. After some time, Travis's friends began noticing Jody's behavior get a bit concerning. It seemed like she was much more heavily invested in the relationship than Travis was in her. Jody was said to be increasingly possessive over Travis, and the relationship became very hot and cold. When it was good, things were really good, but when things were not good, they were very much not good, and this all happened very fast. It was up and down, one day hot, the next day cold. But again, this is not unlike anything Jody has experienced before, and it's par with the course with relationships moving as fast as they do with Jody Arias. Travis and Jody actually broke up only a few months into their relationship on June 29th of 2007, but everybody knew that things weren't really over between them, and they maintained a sexual relationship. 
It's said that Travis saw it as more of a friends with benefits arrangement and was actually seeing other women, but Jodi was way too attached. She was fully invested in Travis still. You may have actually seen pictures of Jodi Arias wearing a gray t-shirt with black text on it that reads, quote, Travis Alexanders. Her behavior began escalating after this. At first, Jody would break into Travis's home and crawl into bed naked, waiting for him to come home so they could engage in sexual relations. A fun game, I think once or twice in a relationship, but again, Travis didn't consider his relationship with Jody to be exclusive anymore, so entering his home when he wasn't there was a lot to take in for him. Jody then began seeking out purposefully who else Travis was seeing and would track these women down, send them hate messages from anonymous email accounts. She even broke into Travis's home again through the dog door, both when other women were present at home and again when the home was empty to snoop around through his belongings. Jody was stalking Travis during various times of the day, and eventually she found out in December of 2007 that Travis had entered a new exclusive relationship, and so Jody decided to slash his tires over this. But apparently, this was not the first time she had done that. It had become apparent to Travis that Jody was bad news and began discussing this with all of his friends openly. But Jodi, if you see photos of her, is a beautiful woman. She had long blonde hair with olive skin and an athletic build. He was physically drawn to her and she was incredibly manipulative, using her allure to her advantage. Sometime in 2008, she managed to lure him back in and they reignited their sexual relationship. And in March, they even took a road trip together. It's unclear when Travis would have broken off his relationship with this other woman he was seeing in December. What was clear was that Jody was pulling out all the stops for Travis, sexually and emotionally, successfully convincing him to come back to her, but that doesn't mean the relationship wasn't contentious because it was. They argued frequently and on many occasions, Travis would confide in his friends about Jody's controlling and obsessive behavior. On May 18th of 2008, Travis actually posted a blog entry titled Why I Want to Marry a Gold Digger about dating and feeling confused in his love life and in part this post reads, desperately trying to find out if my date has an axe murderer penned up inside her. In April of 2008, Jody actually moved back to California and began living with her grandparents in Eureka. It seemed that at this point, her relationship with Travis was actually over. In May of that same year, the home she lived with her grandparents in was actually burglarized and the intruder took a 25 caliber automatic Colt pistol, which has never been recovered. During the first days of June 2008, Travis was gearing up to head out on a work trip to Cancun, Mexico with a friend named Mimi, and they were going to fly out later that month. In the days leading up to it, he was having some trouble with Jody still, but nothing really out of the ordinary from the stunts she already pulled. 
This time, despite her living in an entirely different state, she allegedly hacked Travis's Facebook account, and Travis made a comment to one of his friends that he wanted her out of his life forever. He was done. On June 2nd, 2008, between 1am and 3am, Jody called Travis four times and did not get through to him. But they had a series of phone exchanges in the early morning hours, and at around 5.40am, Jody then set out on a road trip to Salt Lake City, Utah. At 8.04am this same day, she rented a car in Redding, California. Jody drove from Redding to Daryl Brewer's house to pick up some gas for her trip and then made her way to Salt Lake City where she arrived on June 5th. Once in Salt Lake City, she met up with a man named Ryan Burns, a colleague at PPL who she shared a sort of intimate night with, but the most notable thing about this encounter, according to Ryan Burns, was that Jody showed up with her long, blonde, notorious hair dyed brown. On June 6, she left Salt Lake City and began driving home, back towards California. During this trip, she called Travis again several times, but he never answered the phone this time, and so she left multiple voice messages. Travis, in fact, wasn't answering his phone for anybody in the last couple days and actually missed a very important work conference call on June 4th. On June 7th, once Jody arrived back into California, she returned her rental car. The rental clerk stated later that the car had actually been missing its floor mats and the vehicle had red stains on the front and rear seats, but none of this information was able to be verified by police, so take that as you will. On June 9th, a concerned group of Travis's friends went to his home to check on him, it was only a few days before him and Mimi were supposed to fly out to Cancun, and again, nobody had heard from him in a few days. Travis wasn't answering his phone at all. Mimi, her friend, and then her friend's boyfriend arrived at Travis's home that he shared with two roommates, and they could only see the dog inside through a window, but nothing else. Nobody was answering the door, and so they decided to call up another friend who knew Travis's garage code, and they were able to gain access to the home through there. Upon entry, the smell of rotten something struck them immediately, and the group was unsure if it was the dog being left unattended who maybe defecated in the home, or maybe some garbage that had been left in the Arizona heat but either way, the house smelled terrible, and the friends were becoming increasingly concerned and frankly confused about what was going on. When they made an attempt at opening Travis's bedroom door, it was locked, which was odd, but not totally abnormal for someone living with housemates to lock their bedroom. So they knock on the door of one of the housemates to see if anyone else is home. Surprisingly, inside, they find one of Travis's roommates, Zach Billings, present in his own room with his girlfriend watching a movie. The group asked Zach where Travis was, and Zach replied that, oh, he was in Cancun, to which Mimi promptly replied back that that was impossible since she and Travis were supposed to be leaving for Mexico the next day. Zach Billings, now likely able to grasp the depth of the group's concern, grabbed a spare key to Travis's room and proceeded to open his door. The group entered his room, which accompanied an ensuite bathroom, and they were immediately taken back by the sheer amount of blood splattered all over the room. 
Immediately, they all knew something was very wrong here. The group walked into a scene of large pools of blood in the hallway and even more in the sink and splattered all over his ensuite bathroom. The scene was shocking and gruesome. Something terrible definitely happened here, there was no doubt about that. It only took another moment before they all finally saw Travis, laying in a sort of crumpled fetal position at the bottom of his stand-up shower. Travis, who had been very obviously dead for some time, is what his friends smelled when they entered the home. Within seconds of the discovery, one of the members of the group was on the phone with 911, and intriguingly, the dispatcher was asking if Travis was suicidal or had anybody who was out to get him. Without hesitation, his friends on the other end of the line began name-dropping Jody Arias. What's going on? Um, our friend of ours is dead in his bedroom. We, we hadn't heard from him for a while. We think he's dead. His roommate just went in there and and so there's lots of blood. I didn't go in, but I, I can give you the phone to someone who went in there. Can, yes, please, can you? Hello. Hi, so what's going on? He's, uh, he, he's dead. He's in his bedroom okay. in, in the shower. Okay, how did this happen? Do you have any idea? No, we have no idea. Everyone's been wondering about him okay. for well, a few said, days. She said that there was blood. So is it coming from his head? Did he cut no, his No, it, it, it's all over the place. Is there any weapons around? I, no, I don't know. I, not that I saw. How many people are in the house? There are, how, how, many of us, how many are in the house right now? Just the five of us? Five of us. Okay, I need all of you outside. Okay. Hold on just a moment. Okay, you're a good friend of, of Travis's, correct? Yes, I am. Okay, yeah. has he been depressed at all? thinking about yeah. committing suicide, anything like that? I, I don't think he's been thinking committing suicide. He's been really depressed because he uh, broke up with this girl, and he was all upset about that. But I, I don't think he would actually kill himself over that. Has he been threatened by anyone recently? Yes, he has. Okay. he has. A, he has an ex-girlfriend that's been bothering him and, and um, following him and slashing tires and things like that. And do you know the ex-girlfriend's name? Um, um, do you remember it? Yeah. What's, what's his ex-girlfriend's name? That's Taylor. What's, uh... And do you know if he's ever reported it to the police? Um, her, his, her name is Jody. Um, I don't know if he's ever reported. Hold on. Yeah. In the final days of his life, Travis was reported to have said that Jody was the worst thing that had ever happened to him, calling her a sociopath. When Mesa police arrived just before midnight, they surveyed the crime scene and were able to determine that Travis was stabbed multiple times, shot in the right brow area, and his throat was slashed ear to ear, as well as he had numerous defensive wounds on his hands. Detective Esteban Flores from the Mesa police later said in an interview that given the amount of blood there was everywhere, it was obvious that somebody wanted him dead.
There was so much blood that police couldn't determine much else in the way of his injuries, and so Travis's body was sent to the Maricopa County Medical Examiner for a formal autopsy. The police also found a bullet casing on the ground from a 25 caliber Colt pistol, assuming it was a byproduct of Travis being shot in the eyebrow, and they were also able to observe after some careful looking around that whoever did this to Travis had tried to clean it up. Some of the blood in the bathroom was smeared around, and the perpetrator had also used the shower head to rinse Travis off. Also, police noticed that Travis's bedding was stripped from his bed, but they were able to find it blood-stained in the washing machine. Interestingly, along with it, they found a digital camera that was damaged from being in a laundry cycle, but luckily the SD card in the camera was preserved, which was sent in for forensic analysis, as well as the huge amount of physical evidence left at the scene, including a bloody palm print in the bathroom hallway and some hairs. Initially, police were looking at the roommates, especially Zach Billings, who was literally present at the scene for days after the murder had occurred. But it turns out that Zach had spent most of his time in his room with his girlfriend watching movies, likely getting caught up in what couples do when they're alone watching movies in bed, and neither of them noticed the smell of Travis's decomposing remains in the other room, likely because they were there almost the entire time. My guess is that as Travis's body began to decompose and produce a smell, that Zach's sense of smell simply acclimated to the gradual odor, so the roommates were cleared of involvement pretty early. Within a very short time of Travis's body being discovered, Jody Arias was quickly on the heels of Mesa police trying to figure out what was going on. She spoke briefly with Detective Flores, and he told her straight up that her name had come up multiple times since Travis was found, but she told him she wasn't even in Arizona at the time at all. If you remember, Jody was on a road trip from California up to Salt Lake City, Utah, which sounds like a pretty good alibi upon first glance. But likely because Travis's friends were insistent that she was involved somehow, when Jody went to Arizona for Travis's memorial service shortly after, she agreed to go into the Mesa Police Headquarters upon request and be fingerprinted, DNA tested, and formally interviewed. During her interactions with police, Jody Arias downplayed the nature of her relationship with Travis, saying that they were casual friends who were, yes, dating at one point, but did break up and they were still cool and saw each other sometimes. When asked about her whereabouts leading up to when Travis was discovered, Jody told police she had left California on June 2nd and then drove to Southern California and rented a car in Redding and then made it to Salt Lake City on June 5th. She said that actually during her road trip, she called Travis to let him know that she wouldn't be able to make it to see him on her way up to Utah, implying that they made plans together, and actually she told police that she hadn't seen Travis since April of 2008. Unbeknownst to Jody, Travis's friends were determined to have police investigate her fully. A close friend of Travis's named Sky Hughes told the Huffington Post in an interview that Quote, Jody would not let him go. Whenever he tried to sever all ties, she would threaten to kill herself. He would tell her that he didn't want anything to do with her and she would show up at his house. We knew it was her. 
While waiting for the forensic analysis of Jody's voluntary DNA sample, the images on the SD card that were recovered from Travis's washing machine had come back. The SD card contained numerous images taken of both Jody and Travis dated June 4th, 2008, around 5.30 p.m. of them in sexually suggestive positions, which apparently was not uncommon for them to do together. Even more damning, after the explicit photos of Jody and Travis, the next photos on that SD card are a series of images depicting Travis seemingly in shock about something and then bleeding profusely. Police now knew that Jody was lying not only about not seeing Travis since April, but also the nature of her road trip and that she was in fact present at Travis's home in the days leading up to him being discovered. Police now just needed Jody to admit she was lying. It would turn out that eliciting a confession out of her would be a long, drawn-out process, with this road trip timeline she initially offered to police being only one out of three different versions of events that she would produce to police over a span of two years. On June 19th of 2008, police conducted the first actual accusatory interview of Jodi Arias about Travis's murder. She maintained her innocence the entire time and had tried to come up with explanations for the photographs, one that was particularly damning being a picture apparently showing Jodi's pant leg next to Travis's bleeding body laying on the tile of his bathroom floor. She insisted that timestamps on pictures can be changed in the camera settings. She would know since she's a hobbyist photographer. And she also said that her and Travis took pictures like this together often, so those ones must be from a different time. But Jody had nothing to say when police confronted her with the fact that the bloody palm print found in the bathroom hallway of Travis's home near his body contained mixed DNA from both Travis Alexander and herself. As well, there was plenty of hair found in the home and around the scene that belonged to her. Not too uncommon if they had dated for an extended period of time, but Jody says they were broken up and hadn't seen each other since April. I'm presuming somebody in the home would have vacuumed between April and June, and so this evidence was enough to warrant an arrest. On July 9th, 2008, Jody Arias was indicted by a grand jury in Maricopa County, Arizona for the first-degree murder of Travis Alexander. She was arrested in her home in California on July 15th and was extradited to Arizona in early September. During her second interrogation, Jody began relaying version number two of the events that took place on June 4th. This time, Jody admitted to being present with Travis at his home on June 4th of 2008 in a TV interview because frankly, the photographic evidence that she had tried and failed to destroy via the washing machine was indisputable. But this time around, she tells detectives that she arrived at his house at 3 a.m. They began one of their regular hookups, but she says that suddenly they were attacked by intruders. She told police that two people had broken into the home and attacked Travis, killing him, and were going to kill her next when the gun being held to her forehead jammed and she was somehow able to get away. In many interviews, Jody retells this version of events with conviction, teary-eyed and in excruciating detail moment by moment. 
But this isn't her only display of what some would call odd behavior. Her interrogation footage at the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department in California is kind of famous because of the way she acts when she's left alone. Jody obviously knows she's being filmed in the interrogation room. She even stares directly into the camera in between takes of her doing a headstand, singing Oh Holy Night to herself, crying and talking to herself, saying, Oh, you should have done at least your makeup, Jody, gosh, and even asking out loud to nobody, You still hate me? These interrogation videos are in full available on YouTube to watch and I encourage you to do so for yourself. Maybe not the full hours and hours worth of content, but just to get an idea of how she was acting during the interrogation and even when she was left on her own, I'm pretty sure there is a highlight reel version of her interrogation available on YouTube as well. Jodi even smiles when she's taken down for her mugshot which you can also find available on the internet. Detective Flores wasn't buying any of her excuses or stories or odd behavior, but Jody said that she was willing to prove her innocence in court, and so that's exactly what she did. After her extradition, she continued doing jailhouse interviews, spinning different narratives about Travis and the alleged abuse she suffered at the hands of him and her parents, this being a small window into version number three of the events that took place on June 4th, according to Jody. In October of that year, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office filed a motion with the intention of seeking the death penalty against Jody Arias for the premeditated murder of Travis Alexander, at the request of Travis's family, with the burden of proof relying on the prosecution to prove that Jody killed Travis in an especially cruel, heinous, or depraved manner. Initially, Jody was appointed defense attorneys Kirk Nurmi and Victoria Washington. But after being granted the request to represent herself in court by Justice Sherry Stevens, Jody came forward submitting documents to the court outlining version number three about what happened on June 4th, 2008 inside of Travis Alexander's home with the theme of this version being centered around allegations of abuse by Travis, a cycle that allegedly began with abuse Jody suffered in childhood. This time, Jody had abandoned the intruder angle and began weaving a story consisting of intense domestic violence perpetrated onto her by Travis Alexander. This abuse she claimed got so bad that on June 4th, after he became enraged at her for dropping the camera they were using to photograph their sexual encounter, she had to kill him in self-defense. Jody said that as they fought, she shot Travis in the face by accident after grabbing a gun that he kept in his own home and later disposed of that gun in the Arizona desert as she drove up to Utah. Justice Stevens reinstated Jody's defense counsel after telling Jody that she was in way over her head, but shortly after version 3 of Jody's story came out, defense attorney Victoria Washington filed to withdraw herself from the case. A month later, she was replaced with Jennifer Wilmot, a defense lawyer who was especially well-versed in all things Arizona death penalty. 
On January 2nd of 2013, Prosecutor Juan Martinez, during opening statements to the Mesa, Arizona court, made it explicitly clear that the death penalty was the end goal for this trial against Jody Arias. Ryan Burns, the man Jody met up with in Utah on June 5th of 2008, was called to testify and told the court about the evening he had spent with Jody. He said that she was considerably late with a noticeable new hairdo. If you'll recall, she spent her entire life being blonde and was now brunette, and she showed up with numerous cuts on her hands. When asked about these cuts, Jody told Ryan that she got them working at a restaurant called Casa Ramos, a place that doesn't exist, while she had a bazillion margaritas to make. Jody's words, not mine. The prosecution spent days presenting the photos and DNA evidence during the trial, and they also mentioned the 25 caliber spent round near Travis's body, which had come from the same type of gun that was coincidentally stolen from Jody's grandparents' house only a month prior to the murder, if you'll recall. Prosecutor Juan Martinez argued that Jody staged this break-in in order to gain access to the weapon in question. As well, he talked about how Jody was stalking Travis after their breakup, and about how she was so angry he was seeing other women that she slashed his tires. In an interesting move, Jody took the stand in her own defense. When she was questioned about the night she spent with Ryan Burns, and how it was possible she could have spent an intimate night with him only less than 24 hours after a horrific fight with Travis ended in his gruesome death, she stated that she was just trying to act like herself. She just wanted to seem normal and like things were okay. As well, just as in her last version of events, began to tell the story of Travis's alleged abusive tendencies in considerable detail while on the stand. Jody put forth accusations of a long-standing history of sexual and physical abuse by Travis, and on the day of his death, it was her breaking point. Jody said that after Travis screamed at her for dropping his camera, he grabbed the 25 caliber pistol that he apparently kept in his closet and rushed her, body slamming her into the floor. Although police and Travis's friends do not believe he even owned a gun, and no one could uphold the testimony that she gave stating it was kept in his closet. Instead, authorities believed that the gun used in the murder, again, was the same one stolen from Jody's grandparents' home in Eureka, substantiated by the spent casing matching the gun in question, but ballistics could never be run since the weapon was never recovered after she admitted to disposing of it. On the stand, Jody admitted that she did not have any memory of killing Travis, no memory of stabbing him, just a short clip in her mind of dropping the knife and hearing it fall to the tile below. Jody maintains that she was accustomed to extreme circumstances of abuse, claiming her parents brutalized her in the same way for most of her life. However, the unsubstantiated defamatory accusations didn't stop there. She also went on to accuse Travis of deviated paraphilia, such as pedophilia. This was on top of the endless testimony about the nature of their sex life otherwise, including how often they slept together and the different things they did behind closed doors experimentally. Needless to say, during Jody's 18-day testimony, in an attempt to plead her own defense, Jody Arias just ended up making things very awkward in the courtroom, considering both her family and Travis's family was present. 
The prosecution, in an attempt to delegitimize Jody's abuse claims against Travis and reinstate the fact that this was a premeditated murder, brought out one of Travis's exes to the stand, Lisa Andrews, who stated that Travis never showed any signs of anger problems or violent tendencies. Juan Martinez, after a seven-day stretch of cross-examining a very combative Jody Arias, was able to highlight the many lies and inconsistencies in the various versions of events she told. Martinez also pulled out a magazine in the courtroom, seized as evidence from a witness that had a secret note in it written by Jody and smuggled out of her cell into the visiting area where she met with one of her friends. This note read, quote, You f***ed up. What you told my attorney the next day directly contradicts what I've been saying for over a year. Get down here ASAP and see me before you talk to them again and before you testify so we can fix this. Jury foreman William Zervakos later said on ABC's Good Morning America that Jody's testimony was very self-destructive and she was not a good witness for the defense. But if you take it upon yourself to watch any of the courtroom footage on your own, I think that Jodi Arias not being a good witness for herself spoke for itself. Jodi testifying in her own defense proved to only damage her credibility significantly, especially given that this was her third version of events that she displayed to police. Interestingly, the jury was allowed to submit over 200 questions directly to Jodi, which she would answer during her testimony. A lot of these questions had to do with her versions of events, one of them saying, why did you come out and tell the truth two years later? Another saying, would you have told the truth if you didn't get caught? The defense, with one last shot of preserving Jody's character, again brought Daryl Brewer to the stand. If you'll remember, Daryl was Jody's live-in boyfriend at the time she met Travis Alexander. Interestingly, Daryl defended Jody, testifying that their relationship was great and even telling the court about how great her relationship was with his son. Despite the overwhelmingly positive remarks that Daryl had to say about Jody, what the defense didn't consider was the potential for cross-examination by the prosecution, I guess. See, Juan Martinez, in order to secure the death penalty that he was after, needed to get busy proving that Jody not only murdered Travis Alexander in cold blood, not self-defense, but that also she premeditated the whole thing. As mentioned earlier, on her way to Salt Lake City, Utah, Jody took a quick detour to Southern California where she rented her car in Redding, but she also picked up some gas cans from Daryl Brewer for her trip. Seems innocent enough. They were amicable exes and he was just trying to do her a favor, right? But Daryl Brewer had to speak on this matter on the stand, which is when the prosecution was able to plant the seed in the jury's mind that the only reason Jody went and picked up as much gas as she did from him, as opposed to stopping at gas stations on the way to Utah as any person would, was that so she could drive right through the state of Arizona after killing Travis without being seen on any gas station CCTV and thus could deny even being in the state at all which is exactly what she did during initial police interviews before they discovered the images on that SD card found in Travis's washing machine. In an effort to seal her alibi airtight, she even left a voicemail on Travis's phone approximately six hours after he was murdered, according to the autopsy report, while she was on the road from his house up to Salt Lake City, Utah. Over 
Although the Maricopa County Medical Examiner was still unable to determine the exact order of Travis's injuries, the gunshot, the stab wounds, the slit throat, the prosecution was able to negate all reasonable doubt as to whether or not Jody had planned and executed the murder. On March 14th, psychologist Rich Samuels began testimony for the defense that went on for six days. He said that Arias was likely suffering from acute stress at the time of the murder, sending her into a fight-or-flight mode, likely as a byproduct of the many years of horrific abuse that she allegedly suffered, which resulted in a lack of ability for her to retain memories about the crime, hence why she had three different versions of what happened. Samuels formally diagnosed Arias with PTSD, but Martinez was all over this in court, accusing Samuels of bias, given he had previously mentioned to people that he felt compassion and sympathy for Jody Arias. As well, Jody's own testimony did not even support Samuels' claims. She was able to recount to the courts the exact dates of certain sexual encounters with Travis, incredibly detailed stories about her family that occurred a decade earlier, and even the exact coffee she ordered from Starbucks a few days before she killed Travis. On March 26, Alice LaViolet, a domestic violence psychotherapist, testified that Arias had in fact shown signs of being abused, elaborating further that most victims of abuse don't disclose this information to other people due to a fear of humiliation. But shortly after, clinical psychologist Janine DeMart testified for the prosecution that she found no evidence of domestic abuse against Jody Arias and no evidence of PTSD or amnesia. DeMart successfully rebutted the defense's expert witnesses by testifying to the court that memory loss over long stretches of time resulting in such drastic differences in versions of events was atypical of PTSD. Instead, what was more common is short-term, choppy lapses in memory. Janine DeMart diagnosed Jody Arias with borderline personality disorder instead, stating that Jody Arias was immature with an unstable sense of identity. In closing arguments, the defense stated that the prosecution's premeditation theory made no sense. The evidence showed no indication of premeditated murder and instead the jury should view this tragedy as a case of manslaughter committed by a battered woman. Juan Martinez, on the other hand, pointed directly to Travis's defense wounds in photographs stating that nothing indicates this was anything less than a slaughter. There was no way to appease this woman who just wouldn't leave him alone. On May 8, 2013, Jody Arias was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Travis Alexander. This verdict concluded what is denoted the guilt phase of the trial, but the court proceedings were far from over. Out of the 12 jurors, 5 found her guilty of first-degree murder, and 7 found her guilty of both first-degree murder and felony murder. In the United States, felony murder applies when someone dies during the commission of a felony. Honestly, I could do an entire podcast episode on the felony murder rule, but if you're interested in learning more, I recommend the podcast Criminal, hosted by Phoebe Judge, specifically episode number 150, titled 76th and Yates. Juan Martinez, as previously mentioned, was motioning for death penalty eligibility as requested by Travis's family, and now Martinez would get a chance to argue specifically for that now that the guilt phase was over. 
Jody Arias' attorneys presented arguments that in Travis's last moments, it was plausible that his body was in such a state of shock that he may not have felt any pain. But Juan Martinez proceeded to show the court post-mortem photos of Travis, detailing his injuries one by one, pointing out his defensive wounds, and then paused for two minutes of silence to illustrate exactly how long it took Travis to die at the hands of Jody Arias. At this point, there was no denying that Jody Arias was guilty of murdering Travis Alexander, but the defense was still trying to claim that it was not a premeditated gruesome murder like the prosecution, and frankly, many members of the public believed. On May 16th, Travis's family was called to the stand to deliver their victim impact statements. Throughout this entire case, all eyes had been on the theatrics of Jody Arias, taking the attention away from the victim and his family and their incredibly profound loss. Travis's brother, Stephen Alexander, said in court that since his brother's murder, his life has been completely tossed upside down. Since June of 2008, Stephen Alexander has suffered from depression, a separation from his former wife, nightmares, and even ulcers. Samantha Alexander, Travis's sister, spoke about how in the 11 years of her own career in law enforcement, she has never seen anything more gruesome than the photos of her own deceased brother at the scene with which he was found. She was quoted as saying, To have Travis taken so barbarically is beyond any words that we can find to describe our loss. Interestingly, despite making claims in interviews that she would never be found guilty and if she was, she would plead for death, Jodi Arias offered an allocution to the court before her sentencing. She pleaded with the court for a life sentence instead of death. She said that the comments she made on TV interviews regarding her innocence and desire for the death penalty if convicted were due to a lack of perspective. Jody Arias then famously held up a white t-shirt with the word survivor on it and said that she would sell these shirts in jail and donate all the sales from these shirts to victims of domestic abuse. She then also went on to boast about donating her waist-long hair to the organization Locks of Love. On May 23rd, despite Jody Arias already being convicted, the sentencing hearing was halted due to a hung jury regarding the death penalty. They were eight to four in favor. The jury foreman, William Zervaco, said that the jury was emotionally exhausted at this point and that they found the responsibility of weighing death over life in prison to be overwhelming. A few days later, on May 30th, Maricopa County attorney Bill Montgomery discussed the next steps of the trial in a news conference, telling the public that they were actively seeking a new impartial jury, however, the family of the victim could agree to scrap the idea of a new sentencing trial in favor of offering Jody Arias a life sentence with no parole. Evidently, there was no deal, because on October 17th of 2014, a sentencing retrial began. After evidence presentations, once again, another mistrial was called by Justice Stevens on March 5th of 2015 due to, yet again, a deadlocked jury on the death penalty, this time being 11 to 1, with a sole juror holding out. Other jurors did speculate that this sole juror had an agenda and was sympathetic for Jody. So instead of commissioning yet another jury and undergoing the same process, Justice Stevens sentenced Jody Arias to a natural life sentence with no parole eligibility on April 15th of 2015. 
Jodi Arias would serve the rest of her natural life behind bars for the brutal murder of Travis Alexander on June 4th of 2008. In June of 2015, she was ordered to pay $32,000 restitution to the Alexander family, but there's no telling if that money will ever actually be paid out. Since the sentencing, there has been motions filed and even a 324-page appeal which was delivered on July 6th of 2018, seeking to overturn Jodi Arias' conviction. Her attorneys, despite both Kirk Nurmi and Jennifer Wilmot motioning to be dismissed from the case and being denied, continued to argue that prosecutor Juan Martinez acted inappropriately during the trial which may have swayed the jury. Specifically, they mentioned how his enthusiastic delivery of the trial only fueled the media frenzy that followed this trial day by day, not to mention the allegations of Martinez actually taking photographs with fans, I guess you can say, outside of the courthouse. Frankly, the trial was a media circus, but Terry Christ with the Arizona Attorney General's office said that although Martinez may have occasionally violated some standard court customs, none of his actions warranted overturning Jody's conviction or commissioning an entire new trial. And so on March 24th of 2020, the court ruled that despite any egregious and self-promoting behavior by Prosecutor Juan Martinez, that Jody Arias' conviction was based on overwhelming evidence of guilt. Many people are strongly opinionated about this case, and understandably so. This trial had everything in it. Sex, lies, murder, photographs, and heartbreak. Jody was portrayed as the Jezebel-type figure who lured Travis Alexander back in time and time again, unknowingly to his own demise. Jody Arias did everything she could to drag the trial proceedings out as long as possible. The media frenzy continued on and on, putting Travis's family through an excruciating trial and thereby traumatizing them not only with her crime itself, but also by forcing them to relive the experience for over a decade afterwards. Frankly, I trimmed back on a lot of the details of this case because so much of it was just too brutal and it's very easy to get sucked into a rabbit hole with this one. To this day, there are many people who even think that Jodi is innocent, despite the overwhelming physical evidence and very transparent web of lies that she attempted to spin herself into. At the beginning of this episode, I told you all that this was a cautionary tale and I meant it. Jealousy is a toxic disease, one that can be clearly potentially fatal. I know it's much easier said than done, but don't ever let anybody try to take control over you like this. The consequences may be dire. If somebody is telling you that they love you, but is slashing your tires, hacking your social media accounts, harassing your exes, it doesn't matter what they say. Listen to your friends, listen to your gut. Your intuition is there to protect you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can be in the know for when a new one is released. Also, as of now, you can find me on Instagram at crimopediapod, or you can email me at crimopediapod at hotmail.com. Be well, everyone, and listen to your gut, please. I will talk to you all soon. Take care.